Well, I'm extremely excited to start kind of an eight, nine-week series on the book of Romans. It's kind of what we're going to cover chapter by chapter uh, through the summer. We'll only get through chapter eight, and so we'll leave the end of the book of Romans for another time, which we'll come back to and do for sure, um, but excited to be here. So you can turn to Romans chapter one if you want. We always have blue paperback Bibles at the connections table. I'd love for you to mark up your Bible, follow along, uh, look over these things. Romans has always been one of my favorite books. It's kind of been a go-to in moments for me that I was like, hey, I need to be reminded of the goodness of the gospel and who Jesus is. In fact, uh, when I was 25, uh, one of my favorite things to, to still do is go bass fishing. Uh, super redneck, I know, but that's what I like to do. And uh, Katie got me the ultimate gift, a guided fishing trip to Lake Fork, Texas, which is one of like, the best bass fishing lakes in Texas. It was right down the road from us. And she hired this guy that was in our little small town in northeast Texas uh, of Cooper. And so uh, we went, we went and fished. It was awesome. We kind of hit it off. And I was like, Dude, I really like this guy a lot. He's older than me. Uh, seems to maybe know the Lord. And, and, and so we began to fish together. And like, I was like, wow, we're creating a real friendship. Like I got a guy that I like to be around, has a boat and really good at fishing. This is awesome. Uh, what I didn't know at the time was he was really on a mission to uh, convert me to Christianity at the time. Even though I was already in ministry and all these things, he was certain I was not a Christian. And uh, found out over the time that... Uh, He's probably in a little bit of a cult. You know, he had this leader that was like, man, unless you meet me and know the special things and knowledge that I can give you, you can't be saved, which sounds crazy, uh, and it is. But uh, I didn't know all this at the time. And so I realized at one point, dude thinks I'm lost and is trying to get me saved right now. We were fishing at one spot, and he starts telling me how he's like, man, you, you're the closest to salvation of anybody I've met. But in these mainstream churches, you, there's no Christians in the mainstream churches. And you're almost there, but you need to come meet this guy. And I was like, what is happening? This is super weird. And then this snake, a cottonmouth, came up to the boat, which is kind of normal, right? Like and if they're on the water, they want out of the water. So I hit the snake with my rod, and it spins around and goes off. And he looks at me, he's like... The devil's always around when I'm trying to tell people about Jesus. And I was like, what is happening? Like, this is the most awkward position I've ever been in. I kind of came to my senses. I was like, is it worth it to be fishing right now and have to go through this crazy stuff? And I was like, yes, of course it is. Like, we're catching fish. I'll keep doing this. Um, but no lie, <laughs> he was pretty smart, pretty crafty, and was saying a lot of half-truths, enough for real that I went home and I was like, I'm a little confused. <laughs> like, what if I'm not a Christian? What if this is, what if I've missed it, you know? And literally, I, I, I go home and I'm like, okay, the only thing I know to do is read the book of Romans. And I sat down that night and just read Romans cover to beginning to end, and I got to the end and it was like, okay, yeah, <laughs> like I know Jesus, and I know the gospel, and I know who he is, and I'm his, and he is mine. And the reason, reason for that is I believe uh, the book of Romans is one of the clearest, most like tangible explanations of the depths of the gospels that we have in Scripture. It's one of Paul's longest books. And, and what he did in this time was in the church of Rome, uh, you had Jews that were Christians and they were still kind of struggling with, hey, do we do all the kind of sacrificial things? Do we still do some of our Hebrew things that come from the Old Testament law? And then you had Gentile Christians, which is probably the bulk of us, right? You're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And they're going, wait, I thought we could just believe in Jesus, be saved by faith alone, grace alone. And so they're in this argument and Paul goes, man, I've got to write a letter to you that explains explains this as clear as possible so that you understand the gospel. 
I love what Martin Luther wrote. He, he held Romans in such a high view. And here's what he wrote about the book of Romans. He said, the epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word, by heart, but also he should occupy himself with it every day. As the daily bread of the soul, we can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And, and, and I love this. I believe this is truth. There is something, one, in Scripture in general, but especially in some of these books that are so rich in theological clarity in the gospel that as we just continue to, to know it and, and bring it into our heart, it's like an unending, never-drying well of understanding and inti intimate growth in Jesus. And so my hope for us is that as we kind of go over the next eight weeks, we, we leave from this and we go, man, I have better clarity and understanding of the depths of, of what Jesus has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection, how that affects every fiber of my being. Now, Romans is kind of broken into four themes. We'll only get to two of them. Um, after we do the introduction of the letter today, uh, the next three chapters are really about the wrath of God. And so I told Austin Rhodes, our executive pastor, was like, hey, why don't you do the wrath part? I'm tired of preaching hard stuff. Just got our frequently asked questions. Like, I'm good for the hard stuff for a while. You do the hard, I'll do the fun stuff. But super important. Um, and then from there, as we move from the wrath of God, right, you, you can't have really, really good news unless you have really, really bad news. And so... Um, Romans paints kind of this dark picture so that we can get to the rest of the summer will be the grace of God on full display and the riches of his mercy and kindness and goodness towards us. And then hopefully we'll come back and finish Romans sometime. And the last two sections of Romans are, are kind of the plan of God for the Jews and the Gentiles. And the last part is, is how he works out his will in the life of a believer pretty much. And so for us this morning, we're going to jump into Romans chapter 1. He's riding to Rome, never been to Rome, really wants to go to Rome, has tried to go to Rome before and couldn't get there. He eventually gets there on a prison ship and gets to hang out in prison there for a while. But uh, he hasn't been there yet. And so if you will, let's open up to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first 17 verses today. And this is kind of the intro, and it ends with what I would believe is the thesis. Well, hey, if you want to kind of encapsulate what is Romans about, verses 17 and 18 tell us that. And so I want to start there, and our 16 and 17 tell us that. So I want to start there and then jump up to the top. But this is kind of the theme. He says in verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God, or I'm sorry, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this encompasses what he's trying to portray for us, the power of God on full display in the gospel message of Jesus. And so he begins his letter. We'll jump up to the beginning, and here's how he starts. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, Paul starts most of his letters in the same way. Uh, this idea of Paul a servant, the, the Greek word's doulos, and, and it's the same word that could be slave, it could be bondservant, it could be servant, but it's this idea for Paul that he's saying, hey, I have absolute devotion to King Jesus as Lord of my life. 
He is so radically transforming that whatever the cost, whatever he calls me to, I'm in. And we see this actually through a lot of the different authors of Scripture in the New Testament. Timothy, James, Peter, uh, Jude, all of them have this idea of saying, hey, we are a servant or a slave or a bondservant to Jesus. Now, if we're honest, nobody in here wants to take that title, right? Like, we balk at the idea of someone having authority over us. It is not natural in us because we're prideful and sinful and broken to say, hey, I want to be a servant. I want to be a slave. No, we want to be the king. (laughs) We want to be in control. We want to have power and we want to have authority. In fact, the world teaches us that's what you run after. And so we need to understand from the beginning, but there is something intrinsically broken in us that says, I want to rebel against the idea of Jesus being my Lord. That's the sin nature in us. Paul goes, man, I've been so radically transformed that I I willingly lay down my life to say, I'm following you. Whatever you say, whatever you call me to, whatever it costs, I follow you, Jesus. I've talked about this before, but in Exodus chapter 21, uh, the the Old Testament gives us a picture of what a bondservant is. And it's a beautiful picture. It's worth talking about again. And in the Old Testament, what you could do is a lot of times, they didn't have like, you can't be thinking slaves like we think about slaves, but they, they had servants. And, and sometimes if you were in debt to somebody and you couldn't pay that off, you just go work for them. Or, or maybe that's what you did as a job. But there came this moment where you had the choice to go, man, like the people I'm serving, this, my master is so good to me. He, he takes care of my family. He takes care of me. I really have nowhere else I can go that's going to supply my needs. So, so you could willingly say, man, I want to be your bondservant. And literally you went and legally did some things to make like lose your rights. And now this guy owns you as a slave and they would pierce your ear. And forever, by choice, you're this, this person's bondservant. They were your master. And in a way, it was like a good, joyful thing that a servant could do if that's where they thought, man, this is the only place I'll find uh, the ability to be taken care of. It it reminds me of the disciples. Do y'all remember one of my favorite lines in the gospel? Uh, Jesus is kind of talking to like the 72 disciples. There's a big crowd. He's got his 12 disciples. And he starts saying, hey, look, if you're going to follow me, uh, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, that's super strange. Don't want to be a cannibal. We'll see you later, right? That makes sense. Most, he was saying hard things and people were like, I don't want this. But in that moment, he turns to his disciples and he goes, man, everybody else is leaving. What about you guys? And Peter answers in a profound way. And I want to share that with you. John 6, verses 66 through 69. Here's what, here's what it, it says. It says, after this, after he said those things, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Look, Peter was an idiot, but in this moment he did some really great stuff, right? In this moment he's going, we understand that there's nowhere else to be. We understand that there's nothing else that's going to satisfy us. We understand that you have the, the words of eternal life. We understand that you're the Messiah. We're not going anywhere. Um, and he kind of ruins that later. But in this moment, he's, he's doing good, right? And, and it's that same idea for you and I. Look, there comes a moment where we begin to see 
the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has done in you and I. And we willingly go, man, I want to be your bondservant. I want to be your slave. Whatever you call me to do, even if it costs everything, I will follow you. And I love that Jesus was kind of our example of this. Acts chapter 3, it calls Jesus a servant of the Lord. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Like he is the ultimate idea of what does it mean to be a servant of God? He's in the garden. He's going, man, is there another way? He goes, but man, not my, not my will, Lord, yours. Whatever you want, I'm following you. And, and Jesus carries that out unto death. Right? There's a lot of us going, man, there's a lot of things that seem hard to follow God. If I'm, if I'm going to tell him he's my, my master and he's in charge, what if he asks hard things of me? And Jesus is going, man, I've been the example for you all the way to death. And so we get to follow our older brother in Jesus. And Paul calls us to this still today, church. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, here's what he says. He says, this is how one should regard us. If you're a believer, what Paul's about to tell us is all the people around you in your life, this is what they should speak about you and I. This is how they should regard us. He says, as servants of Christ. So the first thing is they should look at us and go, man, that, that dude, he, he follows Jesus in a weird way. Like, whatever God says, it goes. That's how people should regard us. But also, he says, as stewards of the mysteries of God. So he's going, there's two things, Paul, that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be a servant of Christ that people would look at me and go, he follows Jesus no matter what. And the other thing he's going, I'm trying to be a good and faithful steward of the gospel message, to bring that wherever I'm at to the nations. And he continues and he says, moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. You know, I think sometimes when we think about this idea of, yeah, the gospel is supposed to go out to the nations, like... What the Lord is also saying is, hey, the gospel is supposed to go out to China Spring. It's supposed to go out to Waco. It's supposed to go out to your neighbor, to your family in your house, to your coworkers, to the person at McDonald's. Like, regardless of who they are, we're supposed to be faithful stewards of everything we have. Our gifts, our time, our resources, our jobs, our families, all of it. We're going, every day I'm going to wake up as a servant of God and I'm going to live for the glory of God where his gospel goes on full display. And so we're called to be bondservants of Christ, and it's costly, church. C.H. Spurgeon has a great quote, and he says this, you cannot be Christ's servant if you're not willing to follow him. Cross and all, what do you crave? A crown? Then it must be a crown of thorns. If you are to be like him, do you want to be lifted up so shall you, but it be upon a cross. Spurgeon had a pretty good idea of what it means to be a servant of Christ. There's something innately in us that says, I want to wear the crown. I want to be the king. I want to build up my own kingdom, my own dominion. I want power and control. And he's going, man, it, it, if you want to wear a crown, that's great. Just wear the crown of thorns like Jesus did, the king of the universe. If you want to be lifted up, then be lifted up on a cross and give yourself unto death for the glory of God. This is what it means to be a servant. And if we're honest, church, I, maybe it was. Praise God if it was. That was not necessarily the message that was preached to me about getting saved. <laughs> right? It's like, man, God loves you. Just pray this prayer and, dude, follow Jesus. And the call is really this call of, hey, you know what? 
You, you want to follow Christ, then you've got to die to yourself and make him the king of your life and follow him in faithful obedience, no matter what the cost. That's a different kind of call. It's a different weight, but it's a, a good weight. You know what's amazing to me? is Jesus is able to take the cross, right? This instrument of execution and death, this horrific thing, and he ends up making that something that is joy and hope and purpose and peace. So there is something in the idea that when God calls us as his servants to do things that cost things from us, where we're going, man, is it, to give this up is going to be costly. He's able to somehow still make that joy and hope and peace. He makes it good in us. Even when we give up the things, we go, if I let go of this, my world will come crashing down. And so how do you get there? Like, how do you really do that, right? That's a struggle to do that day to day. And it really comes down to trust. Like, do you trust who God is, who he says he is, and what he says he's going to do in your my life? Proverbs uh, chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. This is a coffee mug verse that probably everybody's heard at least once. But it's a hard verse. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your, straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I love this last part. And it will be healing of your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Right? The proverb says, look, if you're going to follow him as a bondservant, you've got to trust him. And what that means is you can't lean on your own understanding. There's going to be moments where he's going to call you to something you're going to go, impossible. Not equipped, don't have the resources, this is too costly. If I let go of this, I'm going to lose all joy. And he's going, that's the place I'm calling you. Following me that, trust me in that, let me make your path straight. And then he says, in that you will find refreshing and joy. What's amazing to me. I, I, I don't... Um, I'm not necessarily advocating for this movie in any way whatsoever, but in 2007, Jim Carrey made a movie called Yes Man, and I watched it, and it was pretty funny. I've got plenty of things that, as a 20-year-old, you know, may not have bothered me, but now I'm like, my kids will never watch that. But anyway, um, but the, the premise of this movie is this. Uh, Jim is like living his life as super safe. So he says no to everybody. He's like, I'm not going out in public. I'm not hanging out with people. I hate people. I go to my job. I come home. I watch TV. I go to bed, rinse and repeat. Safe, easy, super boring. He hates his life. And then he meets this dude that's like, my life's been changed. I went to the seminar and you got to say yes to everything. So Jim goes to the seminar and it's like, hey, every opportunity, anything asked of you, you just have to say yes, no matter what. Now, this isn't biblical advice right now that I'm giving you, okay? <laughs> but this is the premise of the movie. And so sure enough, he just goes through life now. He's saying yes to everything. And he, you know, he ends up learning to play guitar. He becomes awesome. He finds the love of his life, lives the best life ever because he was a yes man. And, and I think that's a pretty good picture of what it means to be a bondservant of Christ, to follow Jesus as a servant is that you and I wake up every day and whether it's big or it's small, our yes is on the table. And that's terrifying. That requires extreme trust in the Lord that he knows what's best. But what would it look like in your life is like you woke up tomorrow and you said, okay, whatever it is, Lord, my yes is already on the table. Don't even have to think about it. It's a yes. You know, I, I think sometimes we go, man, but what if... What if that changes my career? What, what if that changes where I live? What, what, if, what if he makes me befriend people that I really don't want to be around? 
What if it makes me look stupid in front of people? What what if it causes me to do something that I don't really want to have to do? But if your yes is on the table, I believe we get to begin to walk in the things that the Lord desires for us and see things that we can't even imagine for his glory. If I'm honest, man, I started out and that idea of yes to the Lord was terrifying to me. I figured, hey, look, to say yes to God means he's going to make you do the very thing you hate the most. And he's going to make you, like, give up the, the best things in your life. Like, I, I had that view, which is pretty wrong, right? God is a, a good God. He desires good for you and I. He desires to bless us, that we might be a blessing to other people, okay? Uh, but there's still a reality that sometimes to follow God means we've got to let go of things in life that we don't want to. And I was terrified of that. Uh, it's kind of like my daughter uh, last night when that storm came in, we were driving home. Everybody see that storm? It's pretty amazing, actually. It looked beautiful outside. But we, we just got out of uh, end times last Sunday. That's all my kids have talked about. Dad, when's Jesus coming back? We got to figure this thing out. I don't know. I don't even know what I said last week. I can't tell you when Jesus is coming back. Um, and so we're in the car, and Hannah's like, Dad, look at the sky. Is Jesus coming back right now? And I was like, I don't think so. I think it's just a thunderstorm. Maybe. And she goes, Dad, I, don't, I can't go yet. I, I got a life to live. I want to get married. I got kids. I'm like, girl, slow down. You're 11. Chill. Um, but what I told her was kind of the same idea, right? I was like, look, if the Lord came back, we, we can't even fathom what it will be like. All those things you just listed to me will just fade to nothing. Because what he calls us to is greater than we can even understand. And having your yes on the table for the Lord it, it, it is very similar to this. He, what I've found is the more I've said yes to the hard things, really what he does is just transform my heart. And I'm like, that was nothing. Like I gave up nothing to do this. I gave up nothing to follow you. Who cares if that person thought I was an idiot? Who cares if I sold a house that I love? Like who cares? And so this idea of having our yes on the table leads us to be true bondservants of Jesus. And we get to live for his glory in ways maybe that we've never experienced before. And so we look back at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Now we've got like 10 minutes to do the rest of this message. We'll get there. We'll go fast. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. Now, this is important. The word apostle, I want you to know what the Bible says the credential for an apostle is. Because right now, especially in like some charismatic movements, there's this idea of there's these new apostles coming out and they've got revelation for people and all these things. Uh, that, that's incorrect, all right? The Bible defines an apostle as someone that was taught and walked with Jesus. So you had to be physically with Jesus and he's the one that taught you these things. Also, you had to be an eyewitness of his resurrection. So you had to walk with him after the resurrection. And so Paul's saying, hey, look, I'm an apostle uh, because he was one of the last ones. If you remember, Saul of Damascus, uh, Saul on the road of Damascus, Jesus blinds him. And then he goes into the wilderness as in taught by Jesus before he goes into ministry. Most people think that was Arabia. And so it, Paul comes out and he's like, look, I literally was with the resurrected Christ. And he taught me these things and the Spirit lives in me, and all the rest of the apostles are like, this is legit. You're an apostle. That's why he calls himself the least of all apostles. And so he's saying, I'm a servant. I'm an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And then he tells us, what, what is this gospel? Verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son. So he's saying everything that the Jews were looking for in the Old Testament it was found in Christ, who descended from David according to the, uh, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. How was Jesus declared to be the Son of God in power? 
Look what it says, his resurrection. According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. This proved he is the son of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, and if you underline in your Bible, here's a good phrase to underline, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. That obedience of faith is massively important. I think we can be... um, misconstrued sometimes when we think, hey, look, uh, the gospel is like this mental ascension, right? Do you, do you believe Jesus? Yeah, Jesus died, rose again. I know all the things. I believe that. And, and, and I'll be honest. Paul's saying, hey, look, saving faith is obedient faith. And what he means by that is obedience isn't what saves you, but it is, it is the outcome of saving faith. He's going, there is something in us that radically changes, and we go, I want Jesus to be my king. I want to be a bondservant. I want to follow you. Do we get it right all the time? Absolutely not. But the position and the purpose of our heart, because the Spirit lives in us, is I want to be your slave. This is obedient faith. And and I would go as far, James, this is what James is talking about when he says, look, faith without works is dead. He's not saying our works save us. He's saying when we're so radically transformed and literally the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us, it moves us to works of honor for our king. And I would go as far to say, church, if you don't have obedient faith, like if there's nothing in you that wants to, to allow Jesus to be the king of your life, if there's nothing in you going, man, I want to follow you and I want to honor you with my life, even though you may know ethereally and in your mind the things of the gospel, I don't know that you're really saved. How do we know we're saved? The Spirit of God lives in us. And it starts doing things in us that weren't natural. That's how we know. We're like, wait a second. Uh, how, why am I living for Jesus? I never did that my whole life. But now the Spirit lives in me and I want to live for Jesus? It's, it's the seal. It's the promise. It's the, it's the visual of going, no, I, I am in Jesus. I have obedient faith. And so he says, man, my obedient faith is to be a faithful steward, to be a servant, and to preach the gospel to the nations. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, this is really cool to me. Uh, One, the original language doesn't have the words to, to be in that saints part. So it would read, to all those who are in Rome are loved by God and called saints. Now, the the definition of the word saint is this, a person acknowledged as holy. Now, let's ask a real question in this moment. Do you sit in here today and do you feel like, I'm a pretty holy person? If you do, let's talk afterwards because we're going to work on pride, which is not holy. But like, there's something in in us that just goes, look, between my thought life, my actions, like the depths of my heart, I'm not a holy person. I'm just not. And yet, in Jesus, we're called saints. Look, saints, there's not a biblical precedence um, for St. Paul and St. Peter, right? That the, the church says, we're going to canonize you, make you an official saint, and we're going to pray to you. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible says, Paul, St. Paul, is, I'm a saint, and so are you, which is amazing. Like, this is our identity, church. Christ has called you holy. You are a saint. This is your purpose and your identity. 
And, I, and I've told you this before, but it's so massively important that we know who we are in Jesus. If you don't know your identity of what the scripture says, this is who you are in Christ, I believe the enemy uses that to neutralize our effectiveness because we feel unworthy, we feel unholy. We don't walk in that, that new life that he's given us, that new purpose, that new power. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, you are saints. This is who we are in Christ. It's one of the beautiful parts of the gospel. And so he continues and he says, called to be saints, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we move to verse eight and this is kind of his, hey, his prayer for this church. He's going, man, I, I long to see you. I've wanted to come to you and hadn't been able to. And it says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's pretty amazing. That's a pretty huge statement, right? Rome was kind of the most popular epicenter of the world at this time. So this was a very like big church. And Paul's going, look, I don't even live in Rome, but the world is hearing about this church. Pretty, pretty powerful, big church. And, and their love for Jesus is being proclaimed throughout the world. And Paul's going, man, I thank the Lord for that. He says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayer, asking that somehow by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. You want to know what like good Christian leadership 101 is that you never cease praying for the people in your care. That's convicting to me even as a pastor, right? I'm like, and what does it look like to labor in prayer for, for our church? For Paul, he's going, dude, I'm laboring in prayer for a church I've never even been to. Right? This is what it means to serve and to love people as Christian leaders. And, and you know what I love about this fervent prayer part of this passage? Uh, Paul has a real deep godly desire to go to Rome so he can set up the church and then he can ride a ship over to Spain and keep this awesome missionary journey that he's on. And it's not happening. He's like, I've tried and tried. God keeps keeping me from doing that. And so his petition, you know he's praying. He's like, Lord, like, get me down there, man. I want to, how can I get there? And I want to pray for this church. And they, they have all these needs and I have needs and I want to get to Spain to proclaim the gospel. But that's not how he starts his prayer. Those are important prayers. That's probably how you and I pray a lot, right? We wake up and we're like, man, here's what I need. Here's what they need. Can you, can you meet my needs, meet my needs, meet my needs? But how does he start his prayer? He says, first, I pray a prayer of thanksgiving. You know, um, Psalms talks about this a lot. Do y'all ever have those moments where it's like, it's hard to see the goodness of God? Like you get in those seasons where you're like, man, I just, it's hard to see it right now. And the psalmist felt that all the time. And, and so they prayed these prayers of remembering the deeds of the Lord with thanksgiving. And I think that's how Paul kind of lived his prayer life. He's going, man, I'm going to start with just thanking you for all the goodness that you have done in my life. Even though I may be in a season where I can't see it, I'm, I'm going to pray about all the thankful things in my life. And I think that breeds in us that joy and that hope regardless of our circumstances. It's a great prayer to be praying in your own life. And so he says, man, I've prayed for you. I've longed to see you. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, I love this. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I look at this and I'm like, yeah, obviously Paul wants to come and impart a gift to them, right? He's like, hey, look, I'm Paul. I'm going to show up. I'm going to encourage you in Jesus. It's going to happen. But he's literally going, hey, I don't even know you. 
And you may not think you have much to offer, but I, I can't wait to be mutually encouraged by your faithfulness, by, by your love for the Lord. It's going to encourage my heart. Do you realize that God has placed you in, in a place that you are to be an encouragement to others? You may go, man, I got, I've got nothing to encourage others about. And he's going, look, if you'll just be intentional with your relationships, you will be an encouragement. And the flip side of that is that you desperately need some people around you that do the same. Uh, when I was writing the sermon, I have a picture. I was a college pastor for a long time. And there was a particular group of guys that came through my ministry up in Paris, uh, Texas. Uh, <laughs> and, um, man, I just, it was like a brotherhood with these, like, ten dudes. And they were young 20-year-olds and just loved them and invested in them. They were like little brothers to me. And what's amazing is they probably had no idea as like a 19, 20-year-old kid that they were going to encourage and sharpen me as the college minister, but they did. Like they helped shape me into the man I am. And one of them, when I left from there to go to Flower Mound, gave me a picture of us in New York. And it's on this frame that says, as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. And I thought about that, right? And, and that was mutually encouraging. Like those, those guys are grown men now with families and kids, and they love Jesus. Some of them are supporting this church financially even still. Like they're just people that grew into godly men. And I look at that and go, man, we lived life to the fullest. Like they were some of my best friends to run with, right? They were just like little brothers. And we laughed and we played and we did all the fun things and we were just lived life to the fullest. But we were, we were intentional about our time together. And there's nothing wrong with living life to the fullest. But God calls you and I to be intentional with our relationships. That when you go and you hang out and you're fishing and you're having fun or you're doing whatever you do, it's like, no, be intentional about seeing how this person is in their faith. Be intentional about whether or not their heart is hurting or joyful because it's going to encourage you and strengthen you. I mean, there's moments where I was down. These guys encouraged me. There was moments, dude, I've, as these guys have grown into men, I text all of them this week. I was like, I love you and I'm so proud of you. Thank you for being mutually encouraging to me. Every single one of them. And they text back the same. And there's been moments as they've gone through their 20s and some of them in their 30s now where it's like, you had some big moments of failure. I've had some really difficult conversations with some of those guys where they made big life mistakes along the way. And we walk through that. And it's important and it's good and it's right. And that's why we set up community groups. You need an easy way to find other people to yoke your life to. Look, we need to have unbelieving friends. You need to be in the world. I've got some unbelieving friends that I, I like to spend time with. That's good and it's right. I want to show them who Christ is. But the people I yoke my soul to are people that are mutually encouraging in the faith. They're people that will go, hey, Matt, you're an idiot. Now, I don't want everybody calling me an idiot, right? But I'm okay with a few people calling me an idiot. And, and, and we need that in our life as believers. Look, if you're, if you're not plugged into community in a way that is intentional and encouraging, you're missing part of what God has called you to. And so we say, hey, look, we're going to give you community groups. It's one way to at least find some folks. That's why Sunday mornings are so important. Like it's more than just let me, not, let me mark off Sunday. No, man, we want to come around and we want to be mutually encouraging to one another. And Paul's going, I can't wait to be with you because I know I'm going to gain from you and you're going to gain from me.
And so he calls us to intentional relationships. How, how can you do that? This, this week, how can you begin to flip conversations with your greatest friends to continue to brush them up in the things of Jesus, even when it's hard? So it says, I can't wait to do that. Verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest uh, among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to Greek and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And as he ends up this section, he says something that I think is really strange at first glance. He says in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He started this section going, dude, you guys are famous for how much you love Jesus. It's known around the world. And then he ends that section with, and I can't wait to come to you and preach the gospel. Well, they already believe in Jesus, Paul. Why are you coming to preach the gospel? There there must be something richer and deeper than the the gospel being just, hey, Jesus came and he lived perfect and he died on the cross and rose again. If you believe him, you'll be saved. And he tells us what that is with that thing we started with, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it's the power of God for salvation. That word power is this word dumas. Um, And it actually can be uh, uh, translated also like dynamis. And it's where we get our word dynamite from. And so what Paul is saying is that the gospel is, is this explosive power of God that is him in action saving for himself a people that when the when the word of God and the gospel message and the goodness of a God who who comes after us and pursues us and saves us and makes us a people and gives us a future home with him this power of God in action to make that happen that as the gospel goes out and we we trust in Jesus as our king that God is in, in action moving and changing us making us a new creation And it also has with it this idea that the power of God is also that spirit, that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, now dwelling in us as the church to embody this, to be able to live this out. He's going, I'm not ashamed of this because it is is God in action saving for himself a people which I have been a recipient of. And so I lived my life as a bondservant, trying to be a faithful steward of the gospel message, going to the nations, wherever that is in my life, being intentional about my relationships so that I might be mutually encouraging to other people. He says, man, I'm not ashamed of this because it is the power of God unto salvation. And then he finishes with this idea of faith, obedient faith, right? He says in verse 17, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's that idea of how do we become a saint? In faith in Christ. Obedient faith. Faith that moves us to action and surrender. I love what John Piper said about the gospel. It's wordy, but it's good. It says, the gospel is the good news that the everlasting and ever-increasing joy of the never-boring ever-satisfying Christ is ours freely and eternally by faith in the sin-forgiving death and the hope-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a well that never runs dry. This is why Martin Luther says, look, know this in your heart, the book of Romans, and go to it daily 
and continue to drink from a well that never runs dry and grows your intimacy with Jesus, your understanding of who he is, trust in his promises, call yourself a bondservant willingly and freely, trusting that whatever he has, even if it doesn't make sense, will lead to his glory and your good. And live a life as a faithful steward for the glory of God and the message of the gospel. And Paul's telling us, look, if you'll do this, you'll live a life regardless of your circumstances that are full of joy and hope and purpose. That's why Paul's like, look, man, I've been beaten to death. I've been in prison. I've been shipwrecked. People hate me. They've left me for dead. I count it all joy to live as Christ, to die as gain, baby. How do you live like that? Only if Christ is your master and king and you trust him even when it doesn't make sense. This is what it means to to drink of the depth and the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ.